Good morning. One of the most famous Christians in church history was a man named Augustine. Or some of you might know him as Augustine, but Augustine is the right name. He was from Africa, one of the great believers in church history. And he said this, Recognize in this bread what hung on the cross, and in this cup what flowed from his side. I want to talk to you today about Eucharist. So let's pray. Claire, you want to pray for us? Amen. My intention is for this to be a one Sunday word, but it might not be. And I don't want to keep us late or get in a hurry. This could easily be a six-month word or a year word. But I just really sense the Lord wanting us to be refreshed in our understanding of this important part of who we are and our worship experience. Ron and I were sitting um, the other night just talking about Eucharist and things of the Eucharist, and I was reminded by the Lord of my journey. I went to Bible college in 1978. I was 23 years old. When I went to Bible college, they told me I had to cut my hair, shave my beard, and act right. Now, I was already acting right, but the beard and the other stuff scared them, so... (laughs) I... uh, but I loved Bible college. I've laughed, and I've told this story recently, that the whole thing about whether you have to wear a mask going to the store or whatever, that doesn't bother me at all. Uh, <laughs> there are just bigger things that are more important to me. And if they told me I had to wear an aluminum foil hat with a propeller on top to be able to go to church, that's what I would do gladly. Um, <laughs> when I was in Bible college, the lifestyle I had lived before then was not typical to most of the people who were in Bible college there. And many of them had grown up in the church and knew all the songs that I didn't know. And the only song I knew, the only hymn I knew was, Jesus loves me, this I know. By the time they become, they were, as freshmen, most of them were like starry-eyed and inquisitive. But by the time they become like juniors, they're experts. And they become very critical and back then, the Bible college I went to, they had real strict rules, like you could not have facial hair. Freshmen couldn't, dub, they had to double date. And they had a laundromat on campus. I never lived on campus, but you couldn't co-ed wash your clothes because they didn't want guys to see girls' undergarments, their undergarments. And so it was very strict. And I remember hearing some of the uh, juniors and seniors, because I was older, and the Lord kind of opened the door for me able to speak in their life about some things, and but they were, they were complaining, kind of like planning a coup. It was what, nothing they could really do, but just about how ridiculous the rules were, and they were just griping and complaining. And I remember speaking to them and saying, I don't get it, guys. I said, where I've been, 
I said, I'm here. I'm hearing about Jesus every day. I'm learning about the Bible. There's this cool library. And I get to consume all these books that have this full of church history and great missionaries, great men and women of God. I said, and that's what I told them. I said, if they told me I had to wear an aluminum foil suit, I would gladly do that. I'm just grateful to be here. And um, I think God helped them a little bit. But in the process of being there, the library was my favorite part because it expanded beyond what I was learning in the classroom. I could just learn all kinds of stuff. And one of the things I began to learn in 1979 was about communion or Eucharist and how Eucharist was the centerpiece of worship from the very beginning. Even though different expressions of the church did it a little bit different, it just fascinated me. And the first time I went to a church service on Montclair Road near the Jewish Community Center in Birmingham was a little brethren church, Plymouth Brethren, that met together. And in that service, what they did every week, they had a group of elders, and whatever elder showed up that day and said he had the word, that's what they did. But they passed around the little cups and they had Eucharist every week. That was my first experience to be in a church that did that every week. And I knew, because of the stuff I'd been reading, this is really significant. So it just caused me to want to learn more, and I realized I didn't understand everything about Eucharist, but I understood very clearly from early church writers, from what the Scripture said, from the history of the church for 2,000 years, that the vast majority, vast, vast, vast majority of believers had always believed that Eucharist was a centerpiece of genuine Christian worship. And there was not a single Christian anywhere until about the middle of the 16th century that believed any different. Now, the things I'm going to share with you a little bit, for those of you who may be newcomers and who haven't heard us talk about this stuff before, is that what I'm going to be sharing with you isn't from a Roman Catholic perspective. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm historically Catholic, but that's not Roman Catholic. If you believe the Bible and you believe what the church believed from the apostles' own, then you're Catholic. But again, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I love Roman Catholics, but that's not who I am. And there was no such thing as a Roman Catholic church until the middle of the 15th, 16th century, the 1500s. But what I do when I teach about Eucharist, I'll do a few little quotes in the next week or two. Obviously, it's going to be over the next couple of weeks. I'm just going to do a few quotes. And all the quotes that I give, I give like really close to the 100s, to 200 A.D., really close because I want people to understand this is what the early church believed from the beginning. And a number of the ones I'm going to share were people who had relationships with and were discipled by some of the apostles, particularly the apostle John. Now, that's not going to be the dominant thing I do in terms of quoting early fathers, but the ones that I quote, I want you to understand who they are where they came from, the timeline. But I think it's one of those words that we have to be reminded of if we're going to actually value this important part of who we are. I think it's important, too, because when this whole weird stuff started happening a few months ago, and I've reminded you of this before, that as we were just sort of hearing the Lord about what some practical things to do, one of the words that Chuck Pierce shared who's someone I have a lot of respect for prophetically, was that one of the two things that were so significant for Christians to participate in regularly 
if they're going to walk through this pandemic nonsense, this warfare, um, in a healthy spiritual way, was Eucharist, communion. And Chuck Pierce has just raised a nice Baptist boy and got filled with the Holy Spirit and um, has nothing to do, has had nothing to do with what we would call Catholicism at all. And it's been interesting to me to watch other Christians, people from places like Global and Bethel and, and IHOP, Mike Bickle, talk more and more over the years about the importance of communion and in some way or fashion make it available to their people. When Ron and I were out at IHOP, they make it available every single day because they believe there's something significant. So God's doing something in the church world about understanding the value of this as we engage in this cosmic conflict and how God uses this amazing thing called Eucharist to help not just sustain us, but to nourish us spiritually so that we walk this out, not just this situation, but every situation victoriously. So let me read some verses to you, okay? Everybody hanging there with me? Those of you who wear the mask, um, honor you, but you need to get one that, that pictures a smiley face because even if you don't like the sermon, I'll think that you do and it'll be an encouragement to you. <laughs> this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now this is what Paul said, and interesting that Paul says this, that he, what he understood about Eucharist was because he got a revelation from the Lord not because anyone taught him the same way he talked about the gospel. He said it was a revelation from God. So this is verse 23, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, just a couple of introductory statements. When he talks about doing this in remembrance of me, he says, This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. The words there, do this, is an imperative. An imperative means it's a command. It's not optional. And then it's also in the present tense. And present tense means continual action. That he's saying, this is something you should do as a command. It's that important to him. And it should be something that you do often. And never stop doing it often. I remember years ago when when I first moved to Selma and the church that I was at, one of the first things I did was we started having communion every Sunday night. And then when this church started, we started having Eucharist every Sunday morning. It's been that way all these years, for 40 years. So this journey for me has been a 41-year journey of discovering, and I never stopped discovering the unsearchable riches of Christ. But I remember sometimes people would say, well, I don't want to take Eucharist every week because it won't seem as important to me. I'm going, well, therefore, you shouldn't read your Bible every day either because it won't be as important to you. 
<laughs> One of the things I've always, early in the early days, I had to help people get over Romophobia. It's a spiritual phobia that says if Roman Catholics do it, then I can't do it. Well, if they pray for people, then you can't do that anymore either. So we don't want to, you're going to, we don't want to do that, right? All I know is that he says, as a command, as a continual way of life, you should partake in what we call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Now, why? What's the big deal? That verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim, or the word would be announced loudly, actually. or You make a decree, a faith decree, a powerful faith decree. He says, as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim, you decree, you make present and decree the Lord's death until he comes. That's the big deal. That's the why. He's not just saying as a memorial, we proclaim the fact that Jesus died. Now this is happening, remember, in the context of the body of Christ coming together in worship. So if Eucharist is about just going, Jesus died on the cross. We all know that. It's much more than that. It's a prophetic declaration. It's a faith declaration, a strong one. And remember the word remember, for those of you who don't know this, and many of you already do, it, it doesn't carry the idea of memorial. A memorial is for dead people, and Jesus is risen. And when he talks about his death, we make, we announce, we decree his death until he comes again. Uh, the death, when he speaks of the death or the cross, he's always speaking of the complete finished work of Christ. His death, resurrection, and ascension, and all that was com- accomplished. But the word remembrance is a fancy word, anamnesis. Anamnesis. And the word anamnesis doesn't mean to mentally recall. It's a unique Greek word that means to bring a past event present and the event isn't repeated, but as if, as if it's timeless. And every time you announce that or celebrate that, it's made present. And you're there as if you were there the first time it was going on. It's actually an eternal event made present in the time and space every time we make the declaration or the decree. So what's the past event made present? Calvary. When did Calvary happen? Before the foundation of the world manifested in time and space 2,000 years ago. But Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We've said this before. The answer was there before the problem ever came up. That's how God is. And the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is the answer. It is the victory of everything that was about to happen in the garden. And it's made manifest at the at Calvary And so when we talk about anamnesis, we're saying that's an eternal event in the heart of God that was manifested in the natural 2,000 years ago. And every time we have Eucharist, Christ isn't re-crucified. If anybody ever teaches that, that's a heresy. For he died for our sins once and for all. But that event is made present so that we are able to experience it and enter into it as if we were there in the original eternal event. It's really important. So what's the big deal? (laughs) The big deal is every time we celebrate Eucharist, the finished work of the cross, the victory of Calvary, 
over the reign of sin and evil is made present in a powerful way. And we're able to not just observe it, but participate in it. Use your imagination. God gave you one. So let's just say, if you're looking at the cross, if you were standing there at Calvary's Hill, and there's the cross, there's the broken body, there's the shed blood, and everything that that event accomplished in the destruction of the enemy and the making all things new, Jesus said that he bore our sorrow, he bore our sin, by his wound we were healed, he bore our grief, he bore our sickness, he made all things new. Stunning stuff. He accomplished your union with Christ. I mean, think about what it says in Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What happened when he gave himself for me? I was crucified with Christ. So that no longer I would live, but Christ would now live in me. That happened at the cross. Colossians 2 says, the finished work of Christ openly and in a humiliating way defeated the reign of sin, the enemy. When Jesus was buried, you know, we use the analogy of Lazarus, where at some point we have to change that. Maybe when I finish these two Sundays, the next Sunday, I'll talk about the grave clothes. But the grave clothes that Jesus wore were represented our grave clothes of our sin and our brokenness. And when John and Peter went and looked in and they saw that the grave clothes were there, but not like in a, not like in a wad or in a bundle. They were there and the face cloths with light over here as if they were wrapped up just perfectly. Only thing was missing was the body. Jesus just slipped out of it supernaturally. And our grave clothes, our brokenness, the reign of sin over us, all those things Jesus bore. He was wrapped up in those. He was skin tight. And, and when he slipped out of that, we slipped out of that. That's no longer who we are. Now I'm beginning to think we need to change Lazarus weekend to the empty tomb weekend. Because as they went and they peeked in and what they saw changed their life. Or we could call it sneak a peek weekend. <laughs> Is that we help individuals to sneak a peek and see that the grave clothes they keep wanting to drag around has already been left behind. They slipped out of them in Christ. It's a remarkable thing. The old man's gone. So think about all that was accomplished at the cross in every Eucharist when we proclaim his death. That reality is made present. So when you think about Jesus on the cross, say you're there 2,000 years ago, but you will be there, of course, again today. Or that, or I'll tell you what better than that. There's going to be here. How about that? There's going to be here. And you have a, and he, God provided you a lounge chair for the event. I mean, here you are. But no, this is silly, but so go with me here, my silliness. So like you will see all that and you realize this is this broken body. There's a shed blood. And, um, and all the things that the freedom, the making all things new, the, the birthing of the reign of Christ, the reign of the kingdom, your union with Jesus now has your life, all those cool things. Remember what the gospel is? We've been saying this a lot lately from Galatians. So hear me again about what grace, there are some, there are good, there are good definitions of grace, but I got a new one. Cause you can't separate grace from the gospel. It's this. Because of the cross, your inclusion, 
into the life that Jesus lives and the favor that he lives under. If you're prepared to praise him, even when things don't seem to be working out yet, you can't see it. If you're prepared to praise him in the darkness, then you and I, all of us need to take that truth out to a spin and begin to expect to live and experience the same favor that Jesus lives under. If I've been included in the life he lives, then I should know the favor he has. That's the gospel. So if you, if you understood all that, the defeat of the enemy, your union with Christ, his favor accomplished for you, bore your sin, bore your sickness, bore your sorrow, the reign of sin of you been broken, it's there on the cross, and it was made out of gingerbread, dripping with strawberry syrup. What would you do? I would go and consume it. It says about Eucharist in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 8. Let me just read it to you better than me getting part of it wrong. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. That's what we do. Every time we have Eucharist, we feast on the finished work of Christ in a sort of condensed way. Don't we feast on that every day? Don't we celebrate and enjoy the benefits of the finished work of Christ every day? Yes. But there's something about Eucharist that makes it so incarnationally present, so practically present. It's as if we're experiencing the finished work of Christ on a booster level. You with me? At a concentrated level. The word Eucharist, we use the word Eucharist to be Thanksgiving, but it carries more weight than that. It comes from two words. One of the words is well-being. Not just good, like, oh, this is good. No, it brings goodness. It brings well-being. And the other word's grace. But most of the time it's translated as Thanksgiving. But the idea of Eucharist, the word Eucharist is to be thankful for how good God's grace is. And the word charis that grace comes from also gives birth to the word kara, which means joy. So let me give you a literal meaning of what Eucharist, the word Eucharist actually means. It's an acknowledgement of God's beneficial grace that results in great joy. That's what Eucharist is. Coming forth and giving thanks for God's beneficial grace that's mine because of the finished work of Christ that's resulted in such great joy in my life. That's Eucharist. It's a celebration of thanksgiving. It's a celebration of acknowledging that the cross has changed everything. That I'm a new creation because of the cross. That the reign of sin has been broken because of the cross. That I have life and life more abundant because I'm in Christ because of the cross. See, also in Eucharist, if you think about the only person who wrote about this and was John is that in the context of the first Lord's Supper of the Eucharist, after washing their feet, John put his head on the breast of Christ. And it's there John heard the heartbeat of Jesus. That's there he heard the heartbeat of God. And that's why when all the disciples abandoned Jesus at the cross, John came back. You see, because I believe when John heard the heartbeat of God in the chest of Christ, 
he saw the cross. And at every Eucharist, we get to lay our head on the breast of Jesus and hear the heartbeat of the cross that changed everything. That's bigger than coronavirus. That's bigger than economics. That's bigger than anything else. For if by the transgressions of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. That's what every Eucharist is about, and we feast on that in a condensed way, in a concentrated way at every Eucharist. When we receive Eucharist, we nourish ourselves on a highly concentrated level on the presence of Jesus and his finished work. It's a booster shot of the finished work of Christ. Those of you who were around years ago, we taught this over months, a period of months, what Scripture makes very clear, what the church has decreed and declared for 2,000 years, is that it's the serpent's anti-venom and it's death's antidote. The serpent nips at our heels all day long and we walk in the victory that's ours in Christ. But in Eucharist, we get a booster shot of the victory of Jesus. We partake of the serpent's anti-venom. Remember what we said that eternal life isn't about going to heaven one day? It's about going to heaven the moment you became a Christian? Or actually heaven coming to you? Eternal life, the word eternal just is the word ages. It just means ion. It's the word ages. Hebrews talks about the fact that we've partaken of the life of the age to come. The supernatural, heavenly life that's ours in Christ. It's the age to come life. And every time we receive Eucharist, we take a big, huge bite of the age to come life. We take a big, huge bite of that what's called eternal life, the life that Jesus is, the supernatural life that he carries. Don't I have that every day? Yes, you do. But in Eucharist, every Eucharist, we get to take a big bite of it in a fresh way, an extra dose. Why do you do it that way? Because we do live in a world of cosmic conflict. You say, well, this sounds like fairy tale stuff to me. The cross sounds like fairy tale stuff to me. When I led my nephew Brent to Christ, he was three years old, I said, Jesus wants to come and live in your heart. And he said, Uncle Chuck, is he going to climb on a ladder and get real small and climb up into my heart? And I thought, kind of. <laughs> Eucharist is a mystery. Um, Eucharist is glorious mystery. Eucharist, things like Eucharist and signs and wonders, things like that lift Christianity out of gray on gray. There's something supernatural, otherworldly. That's why C.S. Lewis's book were so powerful. It drew us into the reality that the kingdom of heaven's not like what we're used to. It's something bigger. It's something brighter. There's something in a holy way magical about it. And Jesus said over and over again, this is the bread which comes down from heaven. So wow, Citizens of heaven come together in a corporate way, sing the songs of our homeland, release the gifts of the Spirit, the signs and wonders of the homeland, because it's a supernatural age to come life that we get to participate in. And then we eat the food of the homeland, which is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then at the end we go, now, now, go forth into all the world, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, 
Don't get legalistic. I mean, I don't know, because I can't come up with a better word than magical. Maybe it's supernatural. That'd be better. Supernatural food from a supernatural place to help enhance us living the supernatural life that's ours in Christ. But it's all about the finished work of Christ at the cross. See, like, I like brownies, which is a curse because for four and a half years, I can't eat brownies. But what I'll do is I'll nibble on a brownie. It may take me days to finish it, but somehow it doesn't seem as bad, like I'm cheating. But one of the things I've done during coronavirus is I've probably both, Bezos' wealth has probably increased triple because I just keep pushing that button, Amazon Prime. And it makes life so good because I know Christmas is here tomorrow and the next day because it shows up at my front door. Packed up in an Amazon Prime box. I've had sauerkraut come. I've had all kinds of stuff. But one of the ones I saw was the world's fudgiest brownie. I thought, wow. Wow. I briefly, I briefly checked with the Lord to see if it was okay for me to order it. And by the time he answered, I'd already pushed it go and there's no reversing. But it is. It's the fudgiest brownie I've ever eaten in my entire life. And Henry, my dog, would say amen to that. So there's brownies, you know? Like every day, I enjoy the brownies of my life in Christ. But when you have Eucharist, it's like brownies on steroids. It's like you get this Jesus steroid shot that helps you experience Jesus as you go out. So again, what's the gospel? Because of the cross, our inclusion into the life that Jesus lives and the favor that he lives under. Now, I'm going to say that phrase a lot in the weeks and the months ahead because I want us to expand our imagination and dare to go after that. But we can't if you're not willing to praise him in the darkness. You hear me? If we're willing to praise him in the darkness and his goodness never be on trial, let's go after that. That's why five different times in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus said, if anything you ask in my name, I'll do it for you. What? What? That's living under his favor. But don't we have to get perfect enough for that to happen? Don't we have to get perfect enough? This is the whole, we're doing Galatians on Wednesday night. Don't I have to perfect myself enough to where I've postured myself to earn that? No, what Jesus did was perfect on the cross. And in his perfect work, he postured us to experience that. And in experiencing that, you're transformed. I'm too old to put it off. You with me? When I go to heaven, it's just the fudgiest brownies who ever lived, ever was all the time. I want to experience as much as I can. And Eucharist matters because it nourishes my union with Christ. As a matter of fact, it says in John 6, he says, verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's true all the time, right? Yes. But something about Eucharist, because it's the cross made present that I get to feed on that nourishes that and strengthens my experience of that, which makes a difference in my walking things out in Christ. It's a fresh 
and concentrated infusion of the victory of Christ on our behalf. One of the early fathers, Ignatius, called it the medicine of immortality. It's, remember, those of you, how many of you love the, like the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe? So raise your hand if you're one of the, one of the real significant parts of the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe was Lucy's vial. The juice of the fire flower. It was red. And if she would, and after that battle, wherever someone was wounded, even dying, if she put a few drops in their mouth, they came alive. That was about Eucharist. That was Lewis's heart. That's what the point he was trying to make. That we do have battle and we do get wounded. We walk it out and the serpent nips at our heels and yet we gather together. The army gathers together among fellow citizens of heaven and we creatures of heaven get to eat bread from heaven and there's healing in it. I'll read this one thing and then we'll stop and go back next week. Um, I'll, I'll read you two the quick things. This is from John, St. John Chrysostom. His nickname was Golden Mouth. He was considered the greatest preacher in church history. How many are they who say, how should I have wished to see the fair presence of his form physically? His figure, his clothes, Jesus' shoes. Why, here you see him. And while you are longing to see his clothes, he gives you himself not only to look at, but to touch and to feast on and to receive within you. One of the great early fathers, Irenaeus, said this. I'll just read the last part. He causes our blood to flow and the bread as part of creation. He establishes his own body from which he gives increase to our bodies. And the early fathers and mothers said those kind of things over and over again. Not only was your soul nourished, but your very body was nourished. Because the enemy attacks us on the inside out, doesn't he? All righty, we'll stop. Next week we'll look at Romans, uh, John 6 a little more. But I want us to be reminded that we're in a supernatural battle. And God has done some amazing, cool stuff. See, the most that provides for us, not only, see, Eucharist, here's the cool thing, Eucharist is the most charismatic thing I do. To believe that bread and wine become the body and the blood of Jesus becomes that body, that blood, that was there 2,000 years ago. And he doesn't just say, gaze on me, how wonderful. He says, Feast on that and all the life that it brings. When we ring those bells, we're ringing the bells to inform you, wake up, this isn't about a formula. There's a miracle taking place. The cross is now coming into view. The finished work is here. Calvary's here. Feast on it. You see, it's actually the cross that's the anti-venom and the cross is the antidote. And the Eucharist simply is the means. That's what sacrament does. That makes the cross and all the cross accomplished on our behalf uniquely here and something that we get to feast on. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll go at it again next week. But we've talked about the feast long enough. Amen? Let's do the feast. Alrighty. Let's stand together.